It's been an amazing journey through the book of Mark. We've seen, and I've no doubt uh, that, that you've enjoyed it, hopefully as, as much as I have. Not all of us have been here uh, the entire time that we've been, been going through this, but, 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 but in short, Jesus, for the sort of first third of Mark's gospel, he, 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 he comes and he, he proclaims that he's the king that has arrived, and he proclaims that through sermon, and he proclaims it through miracle, and he proclaims it through uh, 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 interaction with, with religious leaders, and he very much establishes a, an authoritative, powerful ministry, showing that he is the Christ that Isaiah foresaw, but now we've gotten to that week where Jesus has gone and trained his inner disciples for a few months. And then he went to Jerusalem in order with, a, with an explicit set goal to upset the leaders, stir them in rage against him so that they will spit him, beat him, mock him, hand him over to the Gentiles, be crucified, killed, buried, and then rise again on the third day. That's his goal. That's the mission and ministry that the Father has ordained that he fulfill by coming to earth. And so that is what he is set to accomplish. Nothing will stop him from that. In fact, he seems, if you would uh, allow my pun, hell-bent on getting there. And so he's arrived in the, in the uh, uh, Temple Mount. This, is, this was quite an amazing story that he did some miracles and, and preaching on his way up the mountain that he got to, to one of the towns just outside of the, the holy city, the temple city, the last little tip-top of, of that mountain, Mount Zion. And as he was going in, he fulfilled prophecy by riding a, a little donkey that had never been rid before. And people sung Psalm 118 on his way up to the temple. And he, he entered the temple in this very royal, very messianic, God-sent Messiah sort of way. And, and then he leaves. And he comes back the next day and he cleans house. He tips over all the tables. He kicks everybody out who is turning the temple mount into a, into a bazaar, into a market, into a way to make money. He kicks them all out and he sets it and establishes it as it was supposed to be a, a, an area for teaching and preaching the Bible. So he starts preaching. We've seen this over the last few weeks that we've looked at Mark's gospel and, and then we see that people come up after, after the day that he comes in and he clears the temple and he starts teaching. This is all still one day for us. They come up and they start trying to challenge his authority. This has been their goal, where Jesus is establishing his authority as God sent Messiah to teach the word, get rid of the false leaders and save his people. While he's establishing that, the evil leaders of the people inspired by money, inspired by control of people, inspired by false sense of religiosity. I'm, I'm sure we've all experienced some, some element of that in our life, inspired by all of these false things sought to destroy Jesus and put him down, but they weren't yet confident or, or let's just say rage hadn't blinded them to become so stupid enough that they were going to try and kill him in cold blood. Instead, they were trying to lure him into a trap, a theological trap or, or a political trap so that maybe Caesar or maybe Herod or maybe one of the theological elites, somebody would be able to have a charge against him that we could kill him for so that the people stop listening to him. This is the same theme that goes throughout the entire book of Acts is that they just keep on trying to make up excuses to get the Christians arrested because the Jews were jealous of Jesus' popularity. Well... Now he has, uh, in the last couple of weeks, so look back at verse 13. Your Bible probably has a little section on it. It says, paying taxes to Caesar. And then the next little section above 18 will probably be titled, The Sadducees Ask About the Resurrection. This was the three, we saw last week, the, the three big groups of people, the elites, the, the aristocrats, the theological elites, the guys who have all the big popular blogs, the guys who have all the money from book sales, the guy, guys who, who own all the prosperity churches, those sorts of people, that, that, that's, the, that's the religious elite of Jesus' day. The scribes hated the Sadducees, hated the Herodians, the Herodians hated the others, and the Sadducees hated the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Herodians were, were loyal political supporters of Herod, the guy who keeps on slaughtering Jews. They're loyal to him. They want to stay on his good side. The Pharisees believe in that religiously legalistic over all of the Old Testament, plus all of the traditional laws that were handed down. And then the Sadducees didn't really care that much for Scripture. They only believed a, a portion of it, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. 
And so these these three groups, though they hate each other, they hate Jesus more. And they conspire to start setting traps for Jesus. He had embarrassed them publicly when he, when he, he told the parable of the tenants against them. These people are going to be slaughtered and God's going to give the religious kingdom to somebody else. That's what he told them very publicly. Everybody saw it. And so then they start sending ones and twos into the crowd to, to ask a question to try and trap Jesus up. So they asked about, should we pay taxes? He said, give to people what you owe them and really tied them up that way. Then, then uh, somebody else, uh, the Sadducees then asked a, a puzzling question about the resurrection, um, and Jesus also answered them. And, and so what we see at the end of, uh, uh, sorry, at the beginning of our text today in verse 28, now we see one of the scribes, that's how it starts, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him. Now, we'll go into what exactly that dialogue was, but basically today, let's just introduce the scribes. The scribes were not a fourth category of person. In fact, the scribes were a subset of Pharisee. The Pharisee had some lawyers. The Pharisees had some scribes. The Pharisees had some some teachers. He's a scribe. So his job is studying the Bible, making application, creating law, studying case law, adding and clarifying traditions handed down from the elders, adding law into today's society out of that. that He was probably also a teacher in a synagogue nearby. This guy knew his Bible. That, That was his job. This is a scribe. I'm going to read verse 28 through verse 34, and we will see the the interaction between this young scribe theologian and the Lord Jesus. And one of the scribes came up to him and and heard them disputing with one another and, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one and that there is no others beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. May God bless the reading of his inerrant authoritative word in our midst this morning. Amen? Amen. I don't think this story takes the turns that you expect it to take. I think that as you're listening to this and then some young buck dares to ask Jesus this and and Matthew's gospel gives us a little bit more insight. It says that he was sent forward from the Pharisees so so, so they got together and they conspired again. Okay, we we need a big one. We need to get him. This is broad range. No matter what he says, if he picks one law, other people will be upset. We'll be able to. Uh, we'll be able to to make somebody hate him. Let, let's just go with this one. They they sent probably the the smartest, the the best, the most studied of them forward to Jesus. So Matthew's gospel tells us that he was cunning, he was lying, he was seeking to trap Jesus. But Mark's gospel doesn't tell us that. Not because it's it's not relevant, but but Mark's focus is the dialogue. Mark's focus is the interaction, the back and forth that Matthew's gospel actually leaves out. And isn't it interesting that as you're reading this, you, you half expect that some, some guy tells Jesus, you know what, Jesus, I give you a pass. You are correct. And I'll reiterate what you said. And, and you know, he just steals his point. People do this all the time. Say, you know, you're right. And they'll just say it like it's their idea when you just said it, right? People do that. Am I the only one who does that? I've done to me all the time. And he's given, it sounds like he's given Jesus a bit of lip. Like, yeah, you know what, Jesus, you pass. If you're in my school, you'd be the top student. We're okay. And you sort of expect, like every other interaction, Jesus is just welling up this flood of rebuke and scriptural authority to pour down on this man. And it doesn't happen. In fact, he, he says to him, you almost see Jesus in his human nature learning something. 
like, like he, he realizes that something is happening in the heart of this young man, and, and Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And it, it fizzles out immediately, and then no one asks any more questions. And, and then next week, we, we start going further into how, how Jesus is going to go, all right, you have no questions, I've got some, and I'm not done pulverizing you. And so he starts asking questions and laying it on them, and the heat's going to pick up, but at this point, it, it just fizzles out in a very curious way. His question, which commandment is the most important of all, starts in a cunning way to try and deceive and trap him. But at some point in this story, we see his, his heart change, his, his understanding. Maybe after Jesus' answer, we see that so he sort of shifts foot and he starts really wondering, really asking, really leaning in. But Jesus' answer is where we'll start. We're going to look at what Jesus says about the law of God, about its importance and its, its basis, and then we will look at the interaction between Jesus and this man. For anybody that is, has ears to hear, what Jesus says here about the law, and this gives us, gives us lens through which to view the entire concept of biblical law. Well, anybody who has ears to hear, this is a seismic shift in, in how you would have previously thought about the law of God. So, so first of all, what we see in verse 31, where Jesus says, uh, uh, sorry, verse 30 and 31, quoting the Shema, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What we start seeing from Jesus is that all of the Old Testament law and all of the commands that you find in the Bible come under this, this umbrella conceptual term called law. Whenever you read something in the Bible, wherever it is, and it basically its, its concept is that it is demanding you to do something. When the response to the text that you just read is an act of obedience, that's law. It tells you to do something, that comes under the category, that sort of fits into the pigeonhole of law, God's command. He's not promising something, he's not blessing you with something, he's commanding, that, that's a law. And law, <clears throat> law is, is, is all over the, the book throughout uh, every page and, and every book of the Bible, it's not as if we just have one testament that has law or one book that has law. Rather, law is all throughout. And what we see, <coughs> of course, the question has to come up, which commands do I obey? And if, if the essence of a command is, I read it and it, may, it makes some kind of command outwards to the reader or the hearer, there's some, there's some in the Bible that you're crossing your fingers hoping you don't have to obey. Right? I mean, I mean if, if I'm honest, I read some sections and I'm glad I'm in New Covenant and I'm glad that I've learned from sound theologians that not all of the Old Testament commands are for us today. Any, any men thankful for that? Uh, uh, getting, getting, I don't know, converted in your adult years, that, that's good news if you know what has to happen in the Old Testament days for you. Well, the, the trick is, the, the understanding of, of which Old Testament laws uh, uh, come through in, in the Old Testament, there was the civil laws, how, how the nation of Israel was to behave, those are now passed away. The ceremonial laws, how they were supposed to give their sacrifices, worship God in the temple, all of those sorts of things, those are fulfilled in Christ and now passed away. But the moral laws, those laws that define sin in the Ten Commandments, those are eternal principles. They were given to the Jews, but they are eternal principles that are ongoing, they're reiterated in the New Testament and still binding today. Now, now, just because some of the Old Testament law is passed away in application doesn't mean it's insignificant or irrelevant for us. Okay, we can still do a sermon series through the book of Leviticus, not a promise, a little bit of a threat, behave, uh, or we'll do it. We could still do a sermon series through Leviticus and pull out helpful principles of holiness and purity and God's glory and, and the rest. Okay, we could still do that. But the laws themselves about the sacrifices have passed away. So under this broad category of law that Jesus is talking about, we have the Old Testament ones of which the Ten Commandments are the binding commands, but also we have the New Testament and commands that we find in the New Testament as long as they are also rightly interpreted. Don't get into a simplistic hermeneutic 
where you think Old Testament, irrelevant for my application, New Testament, obey every command. Because that's not even true. Because there are commands that are said in the New Testament, like send me scrolls, I'm in a Roman prison cell, that you just don't have to obey. Or, or I'm sending Timothy to you, make sure you put him up in a nice house, also not applicable to you. Or go and betray me to the people who are going to murder me, or, or go and kill yourself. Those, they're not for you, they're not our commands. So any command we find in the New Testament, as long as we're interpreting them correctly, that they are meant to be perpetual and for Christians of all times, those also come under the broad heading of law. And what Jesus does is he gives us this lens through which to view all of the Old Testament law in its original context and all commands that we have in the New, New Testament. And that lens is that the law is built on love. That law is built on love that, that we saw in Jesus' two commands, built on love to God, and on love to man. Often we've said the theologians sort of break up the first and second halves. It's not an equal half, but, but kind of halves. The first and second table of the Ten Commandments and say the first four are about loving God. The last six are about loving mankind. We see that the whole law is built on those, that, 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 that essence of love. But then secondly also is that the law produces love. So that the law is built on the concept of love towards God and towards man. And what it produces if we follow it is love towards God and love towards man. This is what Jesus is teaching by, by saying this, by bringing the most important commandment back through the lens of love. That's what he's showing us. And it comes with some very important implications for how we relate and understand God's law today. First of all, God's law is not a curse. God's law is not God's curse. It's actually a blessing. It's a gift. A, a this is how you will find blessing in life. A, a, a picture of God's nature himself. If you hate God's law, that is what Romans calls being a hater of God. If you hate God's law, then you hate that thing which perfectly embodies the righteousness of God himself. Psalm 119 is, is for us to pray where it says, O Lord, how I love your law. O Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. The, the law is a good thing. The curse comes when we disobey. But that doesn't make it itself a bad thing. We need, we need to get rid of our, uh, out of our minds. I even just I, I read a portion of a sermon this week where, where a pastor was sort of apologizing for, for making uh, uh, preaching through parts that had law in it. And he's like, you know, I don't like preaching through the law. It doesn't make us feel proud and judgmental and criticism to each other. You know, the very preaching the law is like, yeah, but preaching the gospel is great for us. I'm like, get out of that pulpit. Never get in one again. The law is God's good blessing of guidance for us. Now, of course we interpret it through the gospel, but we don't ever, ever feel now bad as Christians that the law is some curse, you've got to put it away because love will be enough. No, so first of all, the law of God is a blessing. We should love it, we should pine after it, we should seek it. Jesus came to fulfill the whole law. And he is love incarnate. He said... Here in verse 31, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he did that the most out of anybody. So, so this gets us to our second point, that while law is a blessing, secondly, the implication of what Jesus says here is that the law is what love looks like. If we were to take a poll today and sort of ask you, write, write down or think in your mind of the most loving person on earth. Maybe not somebody you know personally, but, but an idea of the most loving person on earth. I think a, a frequent tendency, not here, other people, they would wrongly say, they would either define the most loving lifestyle, the most loving person, in a lawless way or an anti-law way. They would either describe love as, as, as having no relation to the law, like they wouldn't make the mental connection that, well, if you're going to be the most loving person on earth, you're going to fully obey God's commands. That, that, so people just don't really think of that. Or they would, in fact, 
react more like modern antinomians and say, in fact, if you're really loving, you're not going to have to obey that strict, legalistic, unhelpful, overly law-filled commandments of God. No, no, no. If you're loving, you just sort of float along this pathway of, of oozy, squishy, emotional service to other people, and it looks nothing like the law because the law is a curse. I think that's, that would be tendencies in us. We either define love without the law or define love as being explicitly against the law. Have, haven't you heard that, uh, that, that frequent mindset that what Jesus came to do was put aside the law and save you through love? Didn't you hear that, that, that heretical sermon that went viral back when, back when I was a bit younger? And, and it said, well, we were all back younger a little bit back then. That's how time works. Thank you, Tom. But anyway, a few years back, and the, and the guy said that, that Jesus came and, and for the sake of love, he broke the law. Yeah, yeah, we fall into these traps. Either the Lord doesn't really weigh in on our idea of love, or in fact, love is against the law. <coughs> Rather, Jesus, the, 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 Jesus shows us and teaches us here, and it is replete through Scripture, that the person who fulfills the law the most is the person who loves God and man the most. So Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you're probably surprised to hear that he, he didn't come up with that. He's quoting that from Leviticus. Yet Leviticus says, love your neighbor as yourself. What an obscure place that we wouldn't expect to find. We, we think of the Old Testament, those law passages as, as hard, as begrudging, as negative commandments. But in fact, you cannot love your neighbors better than obeying God's love. You're just not more loving than God. You're just not more smart than God. You, you can't figure out a way to love your neighbor that will top the law of God. Romans 13, verse 9, speaks exactly to this when Paul said, The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. For love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. The law. A person zealously chasing after obedience to everything God has revealed. That person best embodies love in the footsteps of Jesus. It wasn't legalism for him to love the law of God. It's not legalism for us to love the law of God. But also, that when we get to the law and you start saying, okay, I want to be loving, so I'll go to the law, what you'll find the law telling you is that it requires love. The third point here is that law requires love. We may think that, you know, in the Old Testament or, or at some parts, God was fine. He didn't care about love and faith and grace. That was all New Testament back then or, or at certain times or maybe even now. As long as you obey, you can tick off the law and then the gospel comes and says, oh, you've also got to be loving. No, the law itself, both in Old Testament and every New Testament command, the law of God his, his command to human beings, every one of them, requires an internal, zealous, sacrificial love. External obedience without internal love, affection, reverence, and worship is not obedience. In Matthew's Gospel, at this little section, you find Jesus say, on these two commands, to love the Lord your God, and to love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commands hang every part of the law and the prophets. Like, these are the main two roads in town. You stick to these roads, you'll get to the center of town. Every other command in the Old Testament was just a, was just a side road. It was a, it was a side street. It was a byway. But these are the main two strips through town, loving God and loving man. Every other one is just a way to get to them. You get lost, you bump into another law. It brings you back to loving God and loving man. You, you start veering off to the right, you'll find another law that directs you back to loving God and loving man. This is what Jesus meant. The law itself required love. <clears throat> Verse 30, you shall love the Lord your God. Do you hear that? That's a law. You shall love. That's not romantic. That's not something you'd put in a Hallmark card. This isn't a lovey-dovey Valentine, Roman Greco idea of love and, and, and emotional sort of flirtation. This is Jesus saying, this is God saying, Moses commanding, you ought to love. 
Imagine getting that on a Valentine's card or any, in a proposal. As if you've got a, you've got a ring box with, with a muzzle pointing out of it, a trigger on the back and a ring in the middle. Marry me now. It doesn't really fit our Valentine romantic-esque ideas of love. But to God, loving him, and remember, law is not evil, law is good. Love is not opposed to law. Law is embedded in love and love embedded in, in law. So, this shows us, number one, obeying God without love is not obedience. If we're obeying God without loving him from our souls, we can't say, well, I've got the law, I just don't have the gospel, or I've got the law, I just don't have love. Obeying God's laws without love is not obeying God's laws. Okay, but we can twist that around again, can't we? We can say loving God intensely, emotionally, fervently, without obedience is not love. Love without obedience is not love, and obedience without love is not obedience. It's not as if you need the law obeyed, and then secondly, Jesus is saying, there's this other thing that you need, which is love. He's saying, if you don't love, you don't fulfill the law, because the law requires love. The law is love. To love is to obey the law. So the law is very loving. It is very loving to be very law-honoring. And, and maybe at this point, you start... You start asking yourself, if, if that's the case, what happens to my gospel presentation? Um, what happened to the gospel just there? You, you removed the gospel. Because isn't the gospel that the law is bad and you're a sinner and, and God won't accept you and, and the law is negative and you're trying to earn God, but that's okay. God loves you and all you need to do is love God and love people. I mean, isn't that the gospel? You don't have to obey, you just have to love. Isn't that what you sign on and find? I found dozens and dozens with a simple Google this week of churches whose catchphrase, it's all very, very original. The catchphrase is some combination of love God, love people. Love God, love the city. Love God, love friends. Love God, love neighbor. We're about loving God and loving people. It's, it's every church's catchphrase, and that's okay as long as they know that they're giving people, first look at their webpage, a summary of the law that condemns. Do you realize that loving God and loving other people is the law? That if your gospel presentation is, you can't obey all these things, but God just wants you to love him, all you're doing is screwing the condemnation of the law even deeper. That's law. Well, oh, well maybe, maybe, maybe the gospel is that the law uh, condemns and you're not good enough, so, so don't bother about the law. No, no, that's unjust, which is also not loving. What your gospel needs to be is not that the law condemns you, but God just wants love. And even the gospel is not you just got to follow Jesus, because that's also a command that is of an impossibly high standard. Okay, if your gospel presentation is, or if what you've heard and the reason you started following Jesus is, God doesn't need you to obey the law, he just needs you to follow Jesus, the person who preached that is an idiot and you need to understand the glories of the good gospel. That if you thought you could follow Jesus, who is perfectly embodying the law in love, you are blind to your own insufficiency. You can't love like Jesus. You can't follow Jesus makes one command, you watch the disciples make a stupid blunder and you go, those, those silly, silly ancient men. If I had been there, I too would have been, I, I like Jesus, would have been not proud, not, not arrogant, not, not putting my foot in my mouth or up talking myself. I might have even gotten the throne next to Jesus. Oh wait, that's what the disciples thought. No, you can't follow Jesus, you can't obey the law, you can't love enough. That's, that's the command, that, that you fail. The gospel is that in your weakness, your inability to obey God's good law, God made a good commandment to you to love him, to honor him for his, for his creation, to, to give back to him your soul, which he created and blessed with this marvelous world. You, for your sin, deserve to die and God has sent his son to die in your place so that instead of obeying and instead of loving enough, you have faith. Faith. Faith is not love. Faith is not 
the same as love. Love comes out of you. Love does something. Love fulfills the law. Love is a positive act, whether it's internal or external. That's not what God requires. Faith is emptying. Faith is leaning. It's, it's falling back on the promises of God. It's, it's simply hearing and believing the truth of Jesus. That's faith. And by faith, you receive the record of Jesus who fulfilled the law in love and gives to you his righteousness. That's the gospel. When we realize and put this right connection between law and gospel, we realize, we realize our great sin and God's great mercy. So no, the gospel isn't just love enough. But don't you realize this, this dire position that it puts us in? And we've touched on this. That if the greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor to the same degree with which you love yourself, then to fail to do either of those for a moment is the greatest and highest handed offense to God Almighty that you can ever commit. You have offended God by breaking his highest law if for a moment in your life you have never loved him with your entirety and you have not loved other people greater, more selflessly than you love yourself. Sought after their good and preferences and desires as much as you have desired your own. And the realization to every person who, whose eyes are opened by Jesus' explanation here, if you understand that that's what the law required, that's what love actually looks like, then you start seeing yourself dwarfed beneath that standard. Not a single one of you, not a single person you will ever meet has actually accomplished either of those commands for a millisecond in their life. No one has loved God. No one has loved neighbor as they ought to have to the standard of the law that Jesus only has embodied. The greatest commandment shows us our great sin. This is what the law does. This is what Romans 7 talks about. It's a good, perfect, nice, beautiful law, but as a perfect standard of perfect commandments that demands perfect love, it condemns imperfect people. So tonight, how would God judge you? If you were to, if you were to die, he cut your, your life Right here today, we, we might be tempted to say he cut your life short, but it's not short. He, he lets you live the exact amount of days and seconds and breaths that he has planned from eternity past. So what if you find out that, that shortly it is your time and he strips your soul from your body and you are stood before him and he puts before him just, just those two brief, the most important, all-encompassing, summarizing commandments. Love me perfectly and love every other person who bears my image perfectly. What would you do? What would you be found as? Are you guilty? Like, like some of you have been coming either to this church or to churches in your life and your attempt is that if I find the best church, if I know the most Bible, if I understand the most teaching, if I live the most holy life, if I can get my family in the best order, if I can be the best wife or the best husband or the best dad or the best child and I just rip out some of my outward sins, then that will outweigh all of the, 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 the carnality, the, the disgusting uh, uh, incompleteness, the sin, the the, the, the vile things I know my own heart to be, hopefully. And you need to realize that if that is your hope, if you get baptized, people call you the best, the smartest, the most zealous Christian. Your, your parents will think of you as the best child. Your husband thinks of you as the world's greatest wife. Your wife thinks of you as the most godly husband. But this is your hope, that you've been loving enough or law-obeying enough to get into heaven. You will be utterly and instantaneously condemned. You'll never love and obey enough to get into heaven. In fact, that condemnation that you'll hear then, Jesus says, is currently reaching out over you in this life. You're now under his condemnation. You need grace to pull you out of that. You cannot dig yourself out like a, like a person thrown in a coffin nailed shut, buried 12 feet under, buried in, in hardly packed dirt, and then your little hope is, well, if I can, if I can scratch a little bit enough, I've played with diggers in my, in my childhood, I'm, I'm sure I'll get myself out of this. If that is your hope, you will die already dead. 
Your, your life will be death. You'll die. You'll go to see Jesus. He'll send you to eternal death. There is no hope in your ability to love or obey. Now look at what, look at what happens between this man and Jesus. As I, I, wanna, I want us to stay there. What would you think? What would you be told? What words from God would you hear if you were to meet him this day? Well, in that kind of mentality, as, as this scribe has, has brought a, a cunning answer back to, back to Jesus, uh, uh, what about the laws? Which is the best commandment? And, and now in Jesus' answer, he's, he's, something's changing. Maybe he's heard this before. Maybe he's, he's studied something that got to this. But, but what Jesus is saying is, is like the best answer he's ever heard and has been searching for. We don't know exactly what, but something changes in him. Look at verse 32. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. And this isn't like back in uh, verse 13 and 14 when those guys are saying, oh, teacher, you always teach the truth and we love you. No, he, this is coming out of his heart. You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, now, our God, and there is no other besides him. Right? We're all monotheistic, Jesus. You're honoring the right God and, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He was delighted to hear Jesus' answer. He was amazed. He, he was drawn in. And, and you have to picture at this moment the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees who had sent him in. Like they tag-teamed him in, go and take Jesus, no one will do him better than you. And as this heavyweight gets in the ring with Jesus, Jesus starts putting him in a headlock and he's, he's going to sleep. He's agreeing with Jesus. They're, they're sitting back there wringing their hands, you know, waving the flag, trying to throw in the towel and say, get out of there, stop agreeing with him. What are you doing telling him he's wise? They, they could see him welling up with tears maybe. He's, he's there with Jesus and he, he's understanding, he's, he's agreeing, he's getting it and they're frustrated. In this moment, he adds something to what Jesus had said that is not an adding something wrong to Jesus. He's, he's simply adding a clarifying point. Look at what he says at the end of verse 33. Jesus, Jesus never mentioned this. He says, end to love one's neighbor as oneself, or both those commands, is much more than all whole burnt offerings. He's realizing that in the law of love that God had given there was these other commands, not, not just about what to do, but what to do when you failed to do. God knew they would fail, they would not be perfect, they would be unrighteous, and so he put into the law, when you fail, give this sacrifice. If you fail in this way, bring this sacrifice this many times at this time of day, and give it with this drink and this amount of money. And if you fail in this way, give this sacrifice this many times with this amount of money, and shed the blood in this way, but not in this way, and put the body here, and burn that part, and eat that part, and give that part to the Levites. And if you suffer sin in this way, and, and they had all of these laws, and, and he's understanding He's understanding that if I'm too sinful to obey the law, then I'm not going to be able to bring something that fixes it up. If the problem is in me, if the good law finds me faulty, then I can't do anything to undo my fault. I'm already in the ditch. I'm already buried. I'm already dirty. I can't get myself clean. If you can't bring him a perfectly obedient heart, what makes you think you can bring him some animal's blood and fix things up? He understood that, that this is not just what was, this love, this holy, actual, loving obedience is what God desires. If I can't bring that, my sacrifices won't solve anything. And, and he, he's almost quoting here Isaiah, Hosea, Nathan the prophet, many other parts of the Old Testament that get to this. Isaiah 1, verse 10 through 17, to summarize, Jesus, uh, God says to them through Isaiah, to the nation, that was doing external obedience without faith, without genuine justice, without love. God said, I despise your sacrifices because they were bringing them to him without obedient love. So they were bringing the sacrifice. This will solve it. 
God won't care. Kill an animal, sleep with the girl. Doesn't, doesn't matter. Bring some money. Give it to the Levites. Go and steal that. It doesn't matter. Bring the sacrifice. Don't, don't worry about obedient love. No, Isaiah said God hates those sacrifices. In Hosea, and I, I think this was in his mind. I think when he said, like, now these scribes have so much of the Old Testament memorized, that I think this verse just shot out to him as, as Jesus read and told back to him the most important commandments. I, I think this shot to his mind. Hosea 6.6, 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And what does he say? To love God and neighbor is... Uh, is much more than all, all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Actual, obedient love is what God desires, and if you can't bring it, your sacrifices won't solve anything. This is, this is what Hebrews 10 says. Hebrews 10 says, says that the point of the Old Testament sacrifices were never to solve your issue. The point of the sacrifices were never to cleanse your soul. They were to remind you that you're a sinner in case you forgot. You're going to have to lug a lamb to Jerusalem. You're going to have to watch it sprayed out its blood on the floor. You're going to have to take its innards out into the field. You have to do that to remind yourself how fallen you are and secondly, how insufficient to save that lamb is. That's the point of the sacrifices. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2 and 3 and 4. They can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. But, verse 3 says, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the, bull, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. This started bubbling up and, and the puzzle pieces start clicking together as he realizes my obedience is never enough, and therefore the sacrifices that I could bring will never be enough. And so you see Jesus' answer to him. It makes sense, therefore, that Jesus says <coughs> in verse 34, seeing that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far. If you can take that, you're not far at all. Now, now already we know he, he had probably the, the most superior knowledge of the Old Testament out of the group that was there in the temple today. We know that. But Jesus isn't talking about that. Jesus is talking to that part of his, his heart, his soul, his mind that was willing to submit to Jesus' teaching. Because encapsulated in everything that just happened this morning, you, you realize that the scribe believes the following things. He believes that Jesus is an authoritative teacher. That, that's the whole reason he was sent to disprove that. So, so that's number one, Pharisees, scribes, Herodians, don't believe that. He, he does. He's willing to say, you are a, a, an ordained teacher of the word of God. Secondly, he's willing and able to believe that the law, command, uh, the law commanded love. He's willing to understand that. The, the Pharisees did not get that. They, they, they didn't get it. The, the, this had always been a problem for the Jews. That's why Hosea and Isaiah had to write. But he, was, he could understand that. Okay, the, the law actually requires inward love. Thirdly, he was able to, to understand that, that he could not meet that. The other thing that, that the Jews refused to believe was that they were sinners. They would say that. We're not sinners. Those people, the sick the poor, they're sinners, Jesus. We're not sinners. We're, we're the religious elites. Well, well, he was willing to receive that. Jesus is a teacher. The law demands perfect love. I'm not good enough to receive it. And then fourth, what he accepted is that the sacrificial system cannot cleanse me before God. If the religious leaders had believed that, they wouldn't be defending the temple so much. And if other people were able to believe that, then they would lose all of their income because their income was through extortion when people came to pay for animals and sacrifices. So this is huge. Each step, he's, he's traveling with Jesus like no one else had in his circles. Jesus is a teacher. The law demands love. We can't reach the law. And all of our sacrifices are insufficient. You can see how, how close he is to the kingdom. But he's not in the kingdom. 
He's not far from the kingdom, but being not far is not the same as being in the kingdom. Think of Noah's day. Maybe even, even helpful for us to think of it today as the rains came down, the water flooded up, and the water's levels rose above people's heads. It does not matter how near to the door of the ark you were. You could be banging on it from the outside. You could be tunneling underneath, looking for a gap. When the waters came, it doesn't matter how close you were to the ark. It matters if you were in the ark. If you were an Egyptian in the day of the Red Sea being split, and you were sprinting as the waters were coming back down over your countrymen. You were sprinting to the other side and you missed out by only a meter. It does not matter how near to the other side you were. If you were still in the Red Sea, you were demolished and drowned. In the day that the armies would come against Jerusalem, when those large doors would be barred shut and thud closed, it does not matter how near you had gotten to getting inside. If it closes and you're on the outside, you are destroyed by the enemy. In the day of the Passover, it doesn't matter how near to a house you were that was underneath the lamb's blood. If you were not in that house, the destroying angel took your life. Near is not in. It doesn't matter how near you are to Jesus Christ, how, how often you've heard sermons, how often you come to church, how much you give to the church, how, how often you interact with Christians, how much you're trying to obey the law. You are banging on a closed ark door. You are drowning in the Red Sea. You are under an assault from an enemy outside the city gates. You are not in Jesus until by faith alone you have trusted his work. If you are not in him, be warned. You do not have salvation that comes to only people in the king, in the kingdom. So what was missing? And we'll land the plane here. What was missing? If he'd gotten all of this and he was so, so near, so near to the kingdom, what was missing? It wasn't more knowledge. Don't try and get more knowledge. Don't think you need more knowledge to be saved, friends. If you're unsaved, you don't need that. That's the law. That's loving God with your mind, which is the law. We've already established you can't do that. It's not emotional fervor. Don't try and sit here today and think, if I could just well up more affection for the Lord God, then he'll save me. No, that's the law. Love the, God, love the Lord God with your heart. You can't do that. It's not being a nicer or a better person. That's obedience. It's not giving more to the church. That's works. It's not helping people more. That's works. That's law. Law condemns you. You'll never be able to fulfill it. The one thing you need is an empty-handed recognition that what you can bring to the Lord God to tip the scales in your favor is nothing. The one thing, Jonathan Edwards said, the one thing a human being brings to the table to contribute to salvation is the sin that makes salvation necessary. If you recognize that that is all that you have to give, and you recognize that there's nothing you can do, and you simply throw yourself forward onto the mercy and grace of God and, and hope, just hope and believe that Jesus can save people like me. Jesus is the only one who has died in my place. Jesus is the only one who has earned a righteousness in my place. Only he can do it. If that is your heart this morning, that is what God requires. Empty-handed faith in the Lord Jesus who died, rose, and reigns for you. Imagine that lawyer as he's walking away. He's walking away and he recognizes the law, the sacrifices. I can't obey the law, but it must be obeyed if I am to be accepted. And he's walking home and the other scribes are calling like, hey, come back here. You just lost. We're in a, fit, we're in a little bit of a pickle now. And, and he's ignoring them. He's just walking home along that Jerusalem highway and he starts thinking, I, I need something, someone to fulfill the law for me. How can that happen? And then he goes, the sacrifices. Don't forget the sacrifices. I need, I need something to make up for my losses and actually make a sacrifice that is acceptable before God. Where will I find these things? Somebody to fulfill the law, somebody to die in my place and I guess still be alive to be my fulfillment of the law? He, he can't put these together and he's wondering, how, how long must he have thought? 
How long until he heard the gospel preached through the apostles that it, that it clicked and he bent his knee. But, but walking home that day on the hot day, he would have thought, how, how long until God sends somebody to fulfill the law? And in just a few days' time, Jesus, hanging, bleeding, will cry out, it is finished. And, and he's going to wonder, how, how long would it take for me to, me to get this righteousness from God? And Jesus will cry out, it is finished finished and and he would be plagued and he's thinking how long would it take for me to earn some mercy and forgiveness from God and Jesus will cry out Lord Father forgive them they don't know what they're doing I can't bring a sacrifice I can't fulfill the law he's saying and Jesus will say Father forgive them only in Jesus was that man's salvation only in Jesus is the answer to the law and the promise of the gospel that's you this morning you are either saved by Jesus through faith in his gospel, or you are condemned under God's good law as a guilty sinner, the choice is yours. I compel you to receive Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we are, we are humbled as we recognize how little we have known of the law, how little we have known of ourselves even, because the law is a mirror to view ourselves honestly through. Father God, there are some in our midst who have been saved, who know Jesus, but, but have not before come to a, to a hard-hitting grasp of how offensive their sin is to you. It could not have been swept under the rug. It could not have just been wiped away as a, as a misdemeanor, Lord. It was the highest sin possible because it was a failure to love you as you ought to be loved. It was a failure to ascribe to you glory as you deserve to be ascribed glory. Those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ, would you, would you increase our theological and our, and our heart-level understanding of how offensive our sin is to you, God, so that we can glory all the more in your grace. You weren't just throwing aside silly commands. You were, you were pinning our guilt to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. What an amazing Savior he is. Lord God, for those who have maybe played church for a time, maybe they have been, they have been uh, known to Christians, maybe they've, they've never pretended to be a Christian, but, but they're here this morning, Lord God, I pray that the, the condemning power of the law would strike them, leave them with no defense, leave them with only one option, which is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And would your spirit preach a better sermon than I'm able to at this moment, and would your spirit bring them to life with the promise that if they believe, if they simply receive the truth of Jesus' death, they will be saved, they will be justified, they will be adopted, they will be received in the blood and under the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father God, may you honor your Son who lived for us, who died for us, who rose for us, and may you make us a people zealous to fulfill the law, for it is good and it is our delight. And everybody who agreed said... <laughs>